MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, December 26, 2019. I'm your host, AG, and today you'll hear my interview with former acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, and all about the steps he and his team took leading up to the opening of the investigation into Trump and Russia called Crossfire Hurricane. This interview originally aired May 5th of this year, and of course it's relevant now in light of the recent release of the Department of Justice Inspector General report that concluded the investigation was open with proper predication and an articulation factual basis. I'm still honored to this day that I got the opportunity to speak to Andy McCabe directly, and I think you'll find this interview very, very interesting and very enlightening. Uh, Joining us today for the interview is former acting director of the FBI and author of The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Trump and Terror, Andrew McCabe. Andrew, welcome to Mueller, she wrote. Thanks so much for having me. This is it's really my honor to speak to you today. And it was also my honor this week to attend one of your book signing events. And during your talk, you had asked us to imagine ourselves as investigators, and then ran through a timeline, a chronology of events that led to the opening of the investigation into Trump. And I found that timeline to be very helpful and very interesting. And I was hoping that you could run through it with us. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I think it's helpful also, because there's been so much um, reporting uh, that's been, I think, inaccurate and kind of misrepresented um, what we knew at that moment when we decided to expand the Russia inquiry and push for the appointment of a special counsel. So, as I said the other night, I think it's helpful just to put yourself in the shoes of the investigators, which was myself and the small team that was working on the Russia case. And we were all surprised by the firing of Jim Comey. So on that night of May 9th, 2017, I was called over to the attorney general's office um, and informed that Jim had been fired. When we sat down to try to put that in context, we knew if you go back in time to 2014, kind of the fall of 2014 and through 2015, we had been spending a lot of time looking at Russian cyber activity. So during that period, I think it's been reported and it's fairly well known, the Russian intelligence services were very aggressively trying to penetrate and hack into numerous organizations in our country, many of which are located in DC. So these are academic institutions, uh, political think tanks, and some government institutions as well. So we knew from the fall of 2014, that the Russian intelligence services were being very active in cyberspace and targeting entities that were engaged in some level in American political activity. In the spring of 2016, um, George Papadopoulos, in a now well-known event, made a curious comment to a foreign diplomat and basically indicated that he was working on the campaign and that they were aware that the Russians had dirt or you know negative information about Hillary Clinton. We didn't know that at the time, but he made those statements back in May of 2016. So then as we go deeper into the summer of 2016 and the election is underway, what do we find out? Well, we discover that those same Russian intelligence services 
have now also been directing their hacking activity at the Democratic National Committee and the DCCC, both of the kind of major organizations in, you know, engaged at that point and supporting Hillary Clinton as the, as the Democratic uh, one of and the eventual nominee for the Democratic uh, Party. So we knew that the Russians had kind of expanded their cyber activity and were directing it specifically at those two institutions. A little bit later in the summer, sure enough, the material that they'd stolen during those uh, directed hacks was released in the form of the Guccifer 2.0 releases um, and the releases that came out through WikiLeaks. So here you have the, those Russian intelligence agencies sharing the information they've stolen from political entities and apparently for the purpose of damaging Hillary Clinton's candidacy for the presidency. They also released the emails from John Podesta, same thing. Then in July of 2016, the comments that George Papadopoulos made to the foreign diplomat were reported to the FBI. So in July, with that deep knowledge of Russian cyber activity, the apparent goals of the Russians to impact the election, and now having someone inside the campaign tell a foreign diplomat that the campaign was aware that Russian, the Russians had this material, um, we were in a position then to open the Russia case. So on July 30th, we opened that, uh, that umbrella case, and within it, we opened individual cases on four people. How did we pick those four people? Well, it's pretty simple. If you have a suspicion, if you have reason to believe that the campaign might be coordinating with the Russian government, our you know, most serious foreign adversary, we simply stepped back and said, well, what people who we know are connected to the campaign also have established ties to Russia? And that's how, of course, we came up with those first four individuals, George Papadopoulos, for obvious reasons, General Mike Flynn, who had had some high-profile interactions with Vladimir Putin, Carter Page, who is someone known to us for a long time to have had interactions with Russian intelligence, and also Paul Manafort. Then in the fall of 2016, we received for the first time the Steele information. So that information collected by Chris Steele, who was a known reliable source to the FBI, that is provided to us after the Russia case had been opened. Um, we didn't know quite what to make of the steel information. He had given us, as I said, solid and reliable information in the past. So it came kind of from a, uh, from a well-known uh, source. But the information itself was broad and controversial and alleged all sorts of things. We set about the kind of meticulous process of trying to vet that information that we received from Chris Steele. So that's pretty much where we are in the fall of 2016. Then in December of 2016, after the election, we were asked by President Obama uh, to conduct kind of an assessment of what we thought about Russian activity involved in the 2016 election. And of course, the results of that are well known. We produced the intelligence community assessment, a joint product between the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA, in which we concluded with high confidence that the Russians had certainly meddled in the campaign. They had done so first and foremost, with the purpose of trying to sow division and kind of distraction in our dem um, democratic process. Second, they did it to hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of getting elected because they particularly did not like the prospect of a Clinton presidency. And third, they did it to assist, to help Donald Trump get elected. So that gets us to January. At this point, 
we start to have some very concerning, odd interactions between President Trump and Jim Comey. First, the president engages in a series of references publicly to the Russia, the Russia investigation that very clearly indicate to us he is not happy about what we're doing. Um, he consistently refers to the investigation as a witch hunt or a hoax or a sham. So again, as investigators, we take that as a sign that the president does not want us to be doing what we're doing. That is investigating Russian influence on the campaign. Next, he requests a pledge of personal loyalty from Director Comey in a, a well-known and oft-repeated uh, incident that took place during a dinner between the two. Following that, he actually asks Director Comey to discontinue the Flynn investigation. So the investigation into Mike Flynn, which is a part of our Russia case, he asks that we drop it completely. And that was really a watershed moment for me and for others. Um, I think one that indicated to us that the president's odd statements were more than just kind of, um, you know, the statements of someone who, uh, who is unsophisticated and doesn't know how the FBI works. Right. You're, you're starting to get inclinations now that the, these little hic hiccups of obstruction here and there where, and this is all kind of adding up into sort of a, a seeming pattern, right? That's right. That's right. So he's, you know, clearly doesn't want us investigating Russia, has now asked us to stop part of that invest part of that investigation. And then he repeatedly asks Director Comey to kind of make a public announcement to tell the world that uh, he's not, in fact, under investigation. So those are all the things that bring us to May of 2017, right? So all this really well-substantiated malign cyber activity by the Russians, clearly for the purpose of helping President Trump, then this odd behavior on the part of the president and, and kind of, you know, throwing a wet blanket on the investigation, asking us to drop the Flynn investigation, pushing Director Comey for loyalty. On that background, on May 9th, he, of course, fires Director Comey. And in the days that follow, he does additional strange things. Like first, he pushes me to embrace this false narrative that Director Comey was fired because people in the FBI didn't like him. Uh, clearly not true and not something uh, that I was willing to support. He then tells the Russians in the Oval Office that he's fired the director and that firing him has relieved a lot of pressure on the president and the administration. Uh, from the Russia investigation. A very strange thing to say to our adversary in the Oval Office, right? I mean, and then, of course, he makes the comments to Lester Holt that he was thinking about Russia when he fired Director Comey. So, with that incredibly dense background, with all of that information, we then look at what is our responsibility now? What is it that we're supposed to do as the investigators? Right. We're not the prosecutors. We don't take anyone to trial. We don't convict anyone. We don't throw people in jail. We simply decide what gets investigated. And are we at the point here where we should open an investigation on the president? And um, that's kind of, yeah, where it ended up and, and where it all led to. Hey, it's AG from The Daily Beans. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Andy McCabe. Easily the most nervous I've ever been to speak to anyone. Uh, he is, after all, the former acting director of the FBI, probably knows everything about me. Uh, we do have more to discuss after this quick word, so stick around. 
This portion of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Embark. As you all know, I'm obsessed with my pod dog. She just turned two, and she was born on Christmas, so she gets all those combined Christmas birthday presents. Uh, But the best gift I gave her this year was the Embark Breed and Health DNA Test. Embark DNA helps me learn as much as possible about her breed and lineage and how to best care for her. Over 50% of dogs are either at risk or a carrier for genetic diseases, and the Embark Breed and Health DNA test screens for any potential health conditions, so you have all the information necessary to provide your dog with their best life. Embark makes it quick and easy. You just send one simple cheek swab, and they do the rest. Embark uses the most comprehensive DNA testing on the market. They took they look at over 100 times as much genetic information as the competition to give you the most accurate results and to make future genetic discoveries. You can be a part of that. Every Embark dog brings us closer to the goal of ending preventable diseases in dogs, and you can help. Embark has an exclusive holiday offer for you. You can't get anywhere else. Go to EmbarkVet.com now and use promo code DAILYBEANS to save 15% on your dog DNA test kit. That's EmbarkVet.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS to save. You'll be glad you did. And now back to my interview with Andy McCabe. One of my first thoughts would be that letter that um, Rod Rosenstein wrote to justify the firing of Comey and and that apparently Rod Rosenstein didn't realize his letter was going to be used in that capacity. But I was always curious as to why, as as a potential witness for obstruction of justice, he was allowed to oversee the investigation in the first place. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, And it's not (laughs) one that I can answer because I have the same (laughs) concerns about why Rod made that decision. I, you know, recusal is an interesting thing. It's Basically, as an official in the government, if certainly as an investigator or prosecutor, you're confronted with these situations frequently. You're, you have an ethical observ- uh, you have an ethical obligation to kind of review the facts. You know, sometimes seek guidance from your ethics advisors and your conflict advisors. But ultimately, the decision is up to you. It's like nobody can really force you to recuse. It really has to be something that you decide. Um, in this case. You know, Rod had played a major role in the firing of Director Comey, which in and of itself might have been the most significant obstructive act by the president. It's been, of course, now detailed um, in the Mueller report and referred to um, as a potential act of obstruction. So, having played a role in that act, um, it was always odd to me that Rod did not step aside um, from an investigation in which he would be considered at least a witness, if nothing else. But speaking of the Mueller report, something that really struck a chord with me in your book was when you talked about going to paper, which is uh, usually you don't put things down in writing unless it's it's very critical. And so I was uh, hoping you could share with us your reaction to Mueller going to paper in his letters. Now, there's we know, I think there's two letters. We've only seen one to Attorney General Bill Barr objecting to his characterization of his findings and and what kind of an enormous thing that is for him to go to paper like that. Yeah, going to paper. I know this is kind of one of those things that people who are not in government will, you know, kind of <laughs> dismiss as being goofy or, uh, you know, it's like a war between bureaucrats or something. But it is actually pretty significant. I mean, you are obligated to maintain records of 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 the documents that you do create and exchange with each other. So everyone is aware that like sending an official letter is establishing an, an indelible record about a decision or an issue. And so you really only do that when you want to make your position 
perfectly clear in a very strong way and one that you want people to be able to refer to later. So it's not, it's, you know, if you, you might be mad at someone else and call them up and have a heated discussion with them and try to work out some sort of an agreement that happens all the time. You really only go to paper and send the letter when you're expressing a strong opinion and you want others to be able to refer to it later. So I can only imagine that those are the sort of con- uh, considerations that Director Mueller and his staff um, thought about and went through when they wrote that letter. Um, Director Mueller is an incredibly careful, um, kind of judicious guy. He doesn't, he's not the kind of guy that flares off, you know, and reacts emotionally and things like that. So I read the letter. I was struck by how strongly he kind of establishes his position. So it's my guess, and this is speculation here, but that he felt, um, you know, very strongly about the things that he explains in that letter and he wanted to do it in a way that ultimately the world would see. So I, I take it very seriously. Um, yeah, that's kind of what we thought about it as well, especially after your characterization of the whole idea of going to paper in the first place, which we learned from your book. Uh, and while I've got you, I wanted to ask you, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you why you think, and this is an old thing, it's an old subject, but we've got a, we've got a battle of the Comey uh, going on uh, with the listeners of our podcast. Some people believe Comey um, should not have reopened the Hillary email investigation just days before the election and, and possibly lost her the election. And others think he might have been forced into it um, because of potential leaks that could have come out of the New York field office. And I was just wondering if you could maybe go over uh, quickly with us, if you're able to, the timeline of events that led to that decision to reopen the case and, and if you agree with it. Yeah, you know, I can tell you a little bit about what I know, AG. I, I obviously, um, well, maybe it's not obvious. <laughs> I'll just say I wasn't there uh, for the ultimate decision to notify Congress about the fact that we'd essentially reopened the case. Um, I was traveling at the time. I had basically set up the meetings that led to that decision point. Um, but essentially what happened was at the beginning, end of September, beginning of October, we learned from our New York field office that they had, um, you know, taken into custody the infamous Wiener laptop. So it was a laptop used by Anthony Wiener that included a large number of emails that might have been, uh, Hillary Clinton's copies of Hillary, some of Hillary Clinton's emails. So we found out about that in the beginning of October. Um, I had some, I'd given some direction to some of my subordinate leaders to do whatever was necessary to find out what we had. That really kind of dragged on and not much progress was made during, during the course of October. So it's not until the very last week in October that it comes back to me that we're still kind of, um, spinning our wheels in terms of finding out exactly what's on that laptop. So I told Jim, um, I had told him when I found out about the laptop a few weeks earlier, uh, and I brought it back to him and said that he needed to have a meeting with the team. So that meeting took place on, uh, Thursday. I want to say like October 26th or 27th. I may not have the date right. Um, and that's this, that was the conversation that ultimately led to Jim making the decision that he needed to notify Congress. Um, I was not a part of those conversations because at the same time, uh, people were concerned about a separate issue that might cause me to recuse from being involved in any further decisions on the Clinton email case. So while that was pending, Jim told me he didn't want me to participate in a decision. Um, I didn't agree with the way that he was looking 
at the issue. I felt like it would be premature to notify Congress before we knew exactly what we had. Um, I knew that there was probably a good chance that most of that material were simply duplicates of the emails that we'd already looked at. Um, and so, from my perspective, I thought that was a reasonable uh, risk to take, that we should at least do the preliminary work to find out, you know, how much of that stuff was actually new. Jim, as we all know, felt very, ultimately felt differently about it and decided he had to notify Congress before we took any kind of affirmative acts. Um, I cannot tell you exactly what was going through his head at the time. Um, Jim has explained it in his own way that he felt like it was two very, uh, you know, tough options and he picked the one that he thought was the least bad. Um, but I think it's undeniable that the revelation, the public revelation of the work that we were doing there, um, certainly had an impact on the, on the results of the election. Yeah, and I guess that's why I don't really understand the whole idea of a deep deep state con or you know conspiracy where if if you guys were really really truly wanted to not have Trump win the election, you could have revealed that he was under investigation and not uh, reopened the Hillary uh, case. It's, it kind of flies in the face of the idea that it was all a big conspiracy to 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 you know to take down Trump. Yeah, you know you're you're absolutely right. I mean that's just a you know, a convenient and kind of inflammatory political talking point, but has no basis in reality whatsoever. I mean, if you look at the decisions we made through that summer into the fall, right up to the election, um, they were hard choices. They were kind of unprecedented things. We tried to do um, everything we could to avoid stepping into the election. Unfortunately, we weren't always successful. Um but to to suggest that there was some overarching like political conspiracy behind the decision we made is just absolutely false. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll refer back to the decision we made in May, ultimately to open the case on the president. You know, I walked through that whole timeline of everything we knew at that point. Um, and, you know, our authority says when you have an articulable factual basis to indicate that a crime may have been committed or that a threat to national security might exist, that's the threshold that says, okay, now you need to conduct an investigation. That's the decision we made. It wasn't because it was political. We liked Trump. We didn't like Trump. We were trying to overthrow the government. It was had nothing to do with any of that. It was simply acknowledging what is our obligation as, you know, the country's investigators at this time. And we certainly had ample facts to believe that a threat to national security might exist. Yeah. And you had said you're obligated to open that investigation at that time, uh, you know, at, under those circumstances. And if you don't, if you do not open that investigation, then you're acting in a political way. Sure. Yeah, exactly right. So if we had decided, you know what, we have all these facts and all this information, it's clear mm -hmm. we've met the threshold, but let's not do it because it's the president. I mean, that would have been making a political decision. And those are the sorts of decisions that nobody wants the FBI to make. Um, we are supposed to investigate people from, you know, regardless of political party, regardless of social status, social status position, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Everyone is the same in front of the law to us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I appreciate your, your take on that. But uh, before I let you go, you're currently under criminal investigation. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I know that you're, uh, raising money for your legal defense fund. Your, your amazing sister-in-law is, is, uh, helping out with that, uh, who I was lucky enough to meet this week. 
and uh, I, I think that this is your legal defense fund for your 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 current criminal investigation. I, I think our listeners would be happy to contribute if they could. Could you tell them where they can do that? Yeah, Ag, you're you're. I'm sad to say that you're right. Um, after uh, we're now a year in to the criminal investigation of the. Uh, DOJ IG's referral of my report over to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia. And so they are conducting an investigation. We've uh, interacted with them numerous times and tried to be as cooperative as we can. Not sure how much longer that's going to take, but it's been, um, as you can imagine, enormously stressful, um, you know, financially and and psychologically and everything else. So we do have a legal defense fund set up and you can find it at mccabedefense.org. That's M-C-C-A-B-E-D-E-F-E-N-S-E.org. Yeah, of course. Anytime. And uh, thank you again so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Answering my questions best to your ability and which you there wasn't a lot of redacted material. So I thank you for that. But uh, everyone check out the New York Times bestseller, The Threat, out now wherever books are sold. We've we've covered it in our in our MSW book club. And you can check those out, uh, those episodes out if you're a patron. We'll be releasing them to the public soon. Everyone, former acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, A.G., very much for the great interview, but also for the incredible work that you guys did with the book club. Well, you, you wrote a great book, so thank you for that. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Have a good day. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.